Matthew 5, 33 through 37. And we will start our reading today with these five verses in just a moment. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Let me open in prayer and then we'll start. Our Father, we thank you that your word is quick and powerful. It is incisive that your word is discerning our thoughts and intents. And we pray that today as we study this topic, which maybe appears very simple, may appear to be a a simple uh, teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, we pray that uh, you would allow the light of your word to penetrate us, that we would, as we should every week, come forward and lay our hearts open and bare before you so that the cleansing power of your word, that the um, the power of your spirit will come within us and show us areas that are preventing us from having fellowship with you to the extent that we can, uh, that, are, that we're still holding on to, that we are wanting to be in charge of, that we are wanting to be Lord over rather than giving that over to you. We pray, Father, that for each of us, you would expose a part of our lives that we cannot ignore, that we must respond to, We pray that this would be instructive and challenging and also hopeful as we understand uh, the empowering work of your Spirit in our lives to make us more like your Son. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together. I pray that this would be a a time where your Word uh, works in our lives in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in today's section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues to dismantle the false or distorted teaching of the scribes and Pharisees as he describes the behavior of a citizen in God's kingdom. Now remember, his approach to this is to quote or recount for them a portion of the very familiar teaching that his audience would have heard uh, and, and to tell them God's real meaning, God's real teaching, the idea behind that teaching as it originally came from God to them. Now keep in mind that this audience is a group of disciples that went up with Jesus into the hills, into the mountain, and that no doubt other people came along. And so by this time, there's a group uh, of disciples close to him. There's a larger group listening in and that he is speaking to them. All of these people would be familiar with the teaching of the law. All of these people would be familiar with, at least with what had been told to them of what the law said. But when Jesus opens each section by saying, you have heard it said, he speaks with authority. He speaks with authority that they are not familiar with. Over in Mark chapter 1, the audience of Jesus' teaching in that chapter said, they were astonished. They were astonished for he spoke as one who had authority, not like the scribes. So again, Here, in this passage, in verse 33, Jesus opens by recounting to the disciples and to the listeners what they've been taught about promises, about oaths, about swearing. And today, we mean, when we say swearing in today's message, we mean as in swearing an oath. We don't mean cussing, as we say in the South. We mean swearing an oath. So, it is an interesting progression of topics. Since that pivotal verse, verse 17, where Jesus begins talking about how he came to fulfill the law. The topics have gone from murder to adultery to divorce 
And now this, which is a very personal, perhaps smaller, seemingly smaller, minimal sin with just uh, very personal consequences, but it doesn't affect a bunch of people like murder might or like adultery might. But I want to put before you today that this sin of speaking falsehoods is a very real problem in the kingdom of God. So let's read the passage together, Matthew five thirty-three through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Matthew five thirty three through 37 As I began studying for this message, my mind started coming up with different ways that we describe the act of lying. Sometimes these words come out by us saying, I'm not lying, I'm just blank. Other times we're trying to very carefully, politely perhaps, tell someone that we don't believe they're speaking the truth. So, but lying is a very inflammatory word. I mean, we've watched enough Westerns to know that you don't call somebody a liar unless you're ready to back it up. Um, so we come up with another euphemism. And really, the sheer creativity of our cultural jargon is really amazing. I know that here I'm just naming very few of the replacement words that we use to describe an untruth, which is another way of saying a lie. So some of these are colloquial or informal. Words like fish story, corker, whopper, crock, hogwash, tall tale, or you're spinning a yarn. It means the same thing. Some of these are picturesque, talking out of both sides of your mouth. Anatomically very interesting. Talking out of both sides of your mouth. Uh, speaking with forked tongue, again, with the Westerns. Um, you're lying through your teeth. This is a very interesting one. It, it depicts a person standing in front of you, smiling at you, lying to you. You are lying through your teeth. Some are needlessly hurtful to people like me. That is a bald-faced lie. There's no reason to use that ever. Some describe the action of lying with other words that range from accusatory to overly polite to so passive-aggressive you're not really sure what is meant. Words like, you are distorting the truth, misleading, embellishing. That came out wrong. I misspoke. You are a person who has trouble telling the difference between fact and fiction. For you literary folks, that's a good one to use. In the legal community, there's other um, very impressive words, uh, falsehood, fabrication, subterfuge, prevarication, mendacity, I had to look these up, inaccuracy, a misstatement. We might say that's not a lie, that's a categorical inaccuracy. That I'm just being economical with the truth. I'm just spinning the truth, I'm not lying. There's a new slang word that the kids are using these days, 
and maybe with me you can learn this word. This word is benefiction, benefiction. That's a lie you tell someone for their own good, benefiction. Did anybody know that word before? Awesome. Not even the kids? Okay. Uh, there are, there's, there's words for our technology. There's, there's a, a new lie that um, I believe a paper was written maybe two years ago coming out of Princeton. It's called a butler lie, a butler lie. This is a, wor- a lie that we tell when we are text messaging or instant messaging someone. And instead of saying, I need to go, we say, I have to go, I have a meeting starting, or I have to go, the, fo- the phone's ringing. When actually it's not ringing, we just need to end that conversation because it no longer interests us. It's called a butler lie because back in the day when people had butlers, or today, if you have a butler, they might say, they might say um, Tim is not available right now. It, the butler lies for you. So butler lies are what we might do on text messages. We might text and say, I'm on my way when we are still standing inside our house. Or um, traffic is really bad, I hope, because I'm really late. So these are butler lies. There are remade euphemistic phrases. I like this one. Teller of untruths, your trousers have combusted. Tellers of untruth, your trousers have combusted. Um, and then Winston Churchill, who I think I quoted maybe the last time I preached, he has an excellent one. Uh, this man suffers from terminological inexactitude. Terminological inexactitude. You, you have others, depending on the region of country that you've come from, there are other euphemisms that we use for not telling the whole truth. The conclusion of today's message is that we should focus not on how much of the truth do I have to tell in order for it not to be a lie? Do I have to tell half the truth in order for it not to be a lie? Do I have to just tell a portion of the truth? What if I don't actually say anything and I just let the other person assume what they will? Obviously, I cannot control what they think, so if they assume something is not on me, it's not a lie. Instead of focusing on how much of the truth do I have to tell, we need to understand what Jesus considers a lie and what he calls us to do. The conclusion is that Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I would hope that none of us would deliberately start out a conversation by planning to say or do something that is untruthful. Most of us would pride ourselves and say, yes, I'm an honest person. If I were to ask any of you, yes, I'm an honest person. I tell the truth. I keep it real. But I dare say that most of us, if not all of us, lie every day. And that's a problem in God's kingdom. Perhaps this example may help crystallize our need for correction and instruction today from God's Word. For example, if a dad, any dad in here, were to tell his kids on a Thursday night, if you clean your rooms, we will go have ice cream on Saturday night. You know, that might get the responses of, yeah, woohoo, you know, we never get ice cream anymore. Um, we're going to go for ice cream. But before they rush off to do that task, one of the kids turns to the dad and says, Daddy, do you promise? Isn't this perhaps a commonplace occurrence in our life? Have we taught our children or our spouse, our friends, our coworkers that promises or oaths mean more than our everyday words? And is this what Jesus calls his disciples to do? 
So in looking at these five verses, we're going to follow the same model that we took in last week's message. We're going to first look at what God gave to Moses in the law, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then we're going to see the background of what the Pharisees were teaching in the time of Matthew 5. And then let's see what Jesus says when he gets to the heart of the matter. So first of all, what did Moses teach? Um, Let me read a few verses for you from the Old Testament. In these readings, we're going to see that oaths, vows, promises, these words we're going to use synonymously. And uh, hopefully I I did the slides properly, but we're going to start in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. I have five verses to read, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and a couple from Deuteronomy. So let me just read them to you. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain from the Ten Commandments. I think I always took that as no swearing, but this is like taking swearing by the name of God in vain. Leviticus 19.12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30 and verse 2, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 6.13 It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 23.21-23 If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. These are the words of God to his people. It should be obvious from these verses that Old Testament laws blessed and regulated the use of oaths and vows. In biblical times, oaths and vows were used much more commonly than we do today. Today, we reserve them for formal occasions in, in, most, in most families or in most uh, people's lives. These formal occasions, like if you are called to testify in court, you have to take an oath in court. When we get married, we take an oath. When we become an officer, like a police officer, or uh, join the military, when we become a citizen, we take an oath. We do sign contracts. We make promises. And both in the Bible times as well as today, the purposes of oaths and vows and promises were to encourage or require or to induce a person to tell the truth, to be true to their word. In the illustration I just gave about the ice cream dad and his kids, perhaps the request for the promise shows that in the past, this parent did not keep his word. Maybe in the past he forgot or something came up. So his children have now learned to ask him for a promise, an extra inducement to keep his word. If we all kept our word, there would be no need for oaths and vows. Jesus is teaching us here that in his kingdom, in the family of God, we should be so truthful in our speech, in our actions, be so free of deception that there's no need for such an artificial guarantee. So that was what Moses taught. And what did the Pharisees and scribes teach at the time of this teaching? We're at the point in time where people are being taught 
by what was called the oral or the verbal Torah. The Torah of the first five books of the Bible, the law as, as written out. So that was passed down over the years verbally. Um, over the years from Moses to Jesus, the teachers and the scribes and the rabbis would debate these laws. They would write commentaries. They would raise up philosophical and rhetorical fences around these laws. Sometimes these fences or these extra boundaries that they created around the law were meant to protect one from breaking that law. You remember the illustration of the hammer last week where even the hammer was um, not allowed. You couldn't touch a hammer, much less pick it up to use it on the Sabbath. Sometimes the debate and the analysis of the laws was to interpret them for far less lofty goals. These teachers could study the exact syntax of what was given in the law. They could twist meaning by emphasizing certain phrases. They could hyperanalyze every word. For example, here in Matthew chapter 5, the Pharisees had shifted the people's focus away from the vow itself and the need to keep it. Instead, the, the Pharisees taught and their focus shifted to the exact formula used in making that vow. They said, what the law is actually prohibiting is not taking the name of the Lord in vain, but what the law is really prohibiting is taking the name of the Lord in vain. See, the the difference is like the formula. What you vow by matters much more than whether you're keeping your vow. As long as you make the vow properly, if you break the vow, If you break your word, you haven't done so in a way that violates God's law. I didn't make up this word, but I like it. Another pastor made it up. Loopholeology. This is loopholeology. Now, what is a loophole? A loophole, by by the dictionary, is a way of escaping a difficulty, especially an omission or ambiguity in the wording of a contract or law that provides a means of evading compliance. For example, okay, I don't know many of us that write contracts all the time, and and thus loophole means like a legal contract, but in our lives, um, has has a parent ever said, um, son, I want you to clean up your your plates. I want you to take your dishes to the sink. And they turn their head. I mean, there's activity. There's a child with plates heading toward the sink in the kitchen. And then they look back, and there is silverware and crumbs and a napkin. Now, was the point, please only take the plates and please leave everything else? Or was the point, clean your area where you ate? That's a loophole. The, the parents were foolish enough to leave a loophole where they say, um, you know, don't, don't clean up that, the, everything, just leave stuff for me. Another loophole might be um, if you have multiple TVs in your house, and if you ever told a kid, stop watching that TV, and they very innocently, they, they shut that TV right off. And then maybe they walk into the other room and turn on another TV. And they're not violating what you said. There's a loophole that you left open. You say, turn off any device that displays moving images to you. That, that covers the computer because streaming video is not technically a TV. So um, we use loopholes in our, our marriages. It's not just a kid-parent thing. I won't come up with any examples of loopholes in marriage, but I'm sure they exist. Um, we have this obsessive focus 
And it comes from the unregenerate heart, an obsessive focus of finding a way around God's law. The focus on trying to figure out how to break the rules rather than understanding the purpose for the rule. It's the theological equivalent of Calvin Ball. Calvin Ball is a sport created in the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes where the only rule in Calvin Ball is that you make up the rules as you go. And so there's a constant manipulation of the situation and the rules change between Calvin and Hobbes. And uh, I mean, if your rules are stronger than the other person's rules, there's great enjoyment, but there's also inevitably conflict. The Pharisees had categorized in their teaching, um, which we can see today in what's called the Mishnah. It's a written compilation of that oral Torah. They had categorized many types of vows that they considered not binding. They categorized vows that they considered not binding. They created a whole structure of regulations on when you did not need to keep your word. Here are the five types of vows that you're allowed to break. This is in the Mishnah. It's very similar to what we saw in the previous three messages, where anger is okay as long as you don't murder somebody. Divorce is acceptable as long as you give the woman a certificate of divorce. You can divorce as much as you want as long as you do the paperwork. Lust is acceptable as long as physical adultery does not take place. But here, just as before, Jesus is nailing them on their teaching and their distortion of that teaching, by it, that they are adhering only to the formulaic letter of the law as defined by themselves. And this is not enough in God's economy. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 23, we'll read through some more words from Jesus on this topic. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 16 I thought about Steve Kimmel going down into the Grand Canyon, and um, I assumed this was a guided trip that he was on, but Jennifer told me that it's, it's unguided. But uh, it would be good for all the, the men on that trip, all the people on that trip, to keep their eyes open. The, one of the worst situations would be to have a blind guide. And here Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees blind guides. He says in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. According to the Pharisees, I could say to Lisa, I could say by the altar in the temple, I promise to make gumbo for dinner tomorrow night. And when tomorrow night rolls around and... There's no action, there's no cooking, there's no shopping. And she comes to me, I'm like, I, I, I didn't, I just swore by the temple. I just swore by the altar. Um, I can only use that excuse probably one time. <laughs> but if I had said, by the gift on the altar in the temple, I promised to make dinner, then I would be bound to exert my culinary genius on behalf of my family. 
But lest we judge the Pharisees, lest we judge them from our 21st century lofty perches of goodness, you are no doubt familiar with the childhood roots of, for many of us, I don't know if kids play together in the same way, but for many of us, the childhood roots of dissembling this formula of trying to figure out if someone was telling the truth. Uh, For example, if I was playing with some some friends in, when I, in my elementary school days, and there was a secret that one wanted to tell me. And he says, I got a secret for you, Tim, Timmy. I got a secret for you, but um, you can't tell anybody. And I'm like, I will not speak of this to anyone. That's how I talked back then. But um, he said, you got to cross your heart. So I was like, cross my heart, hope to die, stickle needle in my eye, which makes the Bobbeth brothers very nervous, but it gives them business. But Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And then he would tell me the secret. And then a few weeks later, maybe my friend would come back, and I had told everyone, of course. And he comes back and says, you know, you told the secret. What would I say? I had my fingers crossed. Okay? And so then, the next time there's a secret that he would be foolish enough to share with me, he would need my hands in the air, I can't do this anymore, but perhaps I might cross my toes. And then, you know, the formula gets ridiculous. So the Pharisees, this seems ridiculous that they would say, oh, by the altar, but not the gift on the altar. You know, but we do the same things. I don't know who came up with the cross my heart and hope to die, but it could have been any of us. We come up with different ways to focus on not telling the truth. So what is Jesus teaching? Obviously, in this text, Jesus is spectacularly dismantling their whole construct, their pages and pages, their, their paragraphs of words uh, that they use to justify their own lack of integrity, their own lack of truth. Jesus is saying there is no loophole. Even if you could come up with a loophole, you can't get away from the fact that you are swearing by God. Look in the verses. He says, if you swear by heaven, it's the throne room of God. If you swear by earth, God created it. If you swear by Jerusalem, what is that but the city of the great king, God's son? This is an interesting one. If you swear by your head. We notice in all these other verses, we're talking about swearing by religious things, heaven, earth, the temple, gold, the altar. But Jesus is saying, even this feeble, measly attempt to swear by yourself, to swear by your head. Don't even think about swearing by your own selves because you have no control over something as simple and mundane as the color of your hair. And apparently they didn't have the fine folks at New Beginning Salon who can help you with the color of your hair. But the point is that God created that head. God, told, God put in you what, what color your hair was going to be. So even swearing by yourself, you were created, that belongs to God. Instead of trying to figure out the right formulas by which one's word is binding or by which someone is required to speak the truth, Jesus calls his disciples then and calls us today who are his disciples to simply speak yes or no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Mean what you say. There's a simplicity to this but it's a very weighty simplicity. Jesus says that anything more than yes or no comes from evil. And I believe that he's saying that that, that dishonesty or our lies come from within us. 
As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jesus, furthermore, in his teaching ministry, says a very sobering word in John 8, 44, where he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So this is the simple call today. Be honest in your words and actions. Tell the truth. The point of Christ's words here are not don't swear oaths. The point of Christ's words here is stop focusing on what you swear by and whether or not you have to keep your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Perhaps a modern question that we might have is, is it acceptable then, given these words in uh, Matthew 5, is it acceptable for a, a Christian to swear an oath in court, to join the military, to um, become a citizen and take an oath? Um, we can see in, in, throughout the Bible that oaths were taken. God himself took uh, swore oaths. I preached a message um, in our Genesis series that focused on the cutting of the covenant and the, the cutting of the animals, and, and God, in the form of an um, incense burner, went between them and cut the covenant. He swore by himself this covenant with Abraham. He swore to make Abraham a great nation, to uh, prever- preserve for himself a people. Uh, one of us taught when we were in Genesis on the flood and how uh, that God swore he made a vow, a promise to Noah and to mankind that he would not destroy the earth with water. But the point is, why does God swear and promise and vow? Is his word not enough? The point is that God promises and swears so that it will help us to believe. God knows that we have a lack of faith. The oath is a merciful tool to help an unbelieving recipient. God has never lied at any time. Titus 1-2. God has never lied, even if it was his word beyond an oath or promise. God has never lied. And the New Testament, however, often talks about the meaning of these promises that God has made to us. Uh, Look in Hebrews chapter 6. It should be on screen. Hebrews chapter 6, where the New Testament frequently refers to the hope of the promise. Hebrews 6.13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. But when, so when God desired to show to mankind, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things— in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. God gives us his promise so that we have a sure and steadfast hope to hold on to the hope of the promise. So the conclusion is very simple. This seems simple, yet it is very hard for us 
Think for a moment, and no pun intended, be honest with yourself before God today. In our own way, don't we search for and then exploit loopholes? Aren't we sometimes or frequently or constantly ruthless in our own pursuit of shaping the truth for our own convenience and our own agendas, just like the Pharisees? I'm going to use the word lied in the next few minutes instead of shading the truth. Because I, I, I believe that any shading of the truth, any untruth, any omission of the truth, any of the euphemisms that I used at the beginning of the message, these run contrary to the call that Jesus is giving to his disciples here and to us, his disciples, today. So don't we lie in the area of punctuality, of finishing tasks? Has anybody here ever, don't raise your hand, ever said, I'll be home by 6.30 for supper. If I'm going to be late, I'll call. That's a compounded lie because frequently somebody might not even be home by 6.30 and also not call. Has anybody ever told a, a, a supervisor at work, I'll be done with this paper by Friday morning, knowing full well that I'm just buying myself time. If I told him I really won't have it done by Tuesday, he'd get ticked off. So by Friday, I'll make another excuse. I'm just going to buy some time for myself. Sometimes our dishonesty is made even more sinful. Our lying is made even more sinful by how we apply it. Don't we lie more readily to the powerless, a child? Much more readily than we do to a powerful person like a client or a manager? Do we break less visible commitments like working in the nursery much more readily than we break a commitment about being here to preach or teach or to sing on the worship team? We can also lie with our actions, not just our words. We can lie with our silence by hoping that in a conversation someone does not ask us the specific question that we don't want to answer, even though we know the whole point of our relationship in, uh, in that conversation is on a particular topic. We just keep silent, hoping that it doesn't come up. We can hope that if, if we have made a mistake or if we have made an omission or a sin that has some consequences. We just hope that it will go unnoticed for a little while until we have a chance to cover it up, or even worse, until we have a chance to blame someone else. And that can be something as simple as a broken lamp, or it can be something much, much worse. We can pretend that our lives are something that they are not to our friends. Exaggeration is also lying Exaggerating can take the form of the time that we report at work. Exaggeration or under-exaggeration can take place at this time of year when we report our income for our taxes. Have we ever exaggerated the extent to which we are sick or our children are sick in order to foster sympathy and gain attention? Or do we ever do the opposite, exaggerate how wonderful our life is going because we want to foster envy and gain attention in that way. Pastors and teachers have a perennial problem of speaking with what's been termed, sadly, but jokingly, speaking evangelistically. Um, this typically comes up when pastors are trying to compare numbers at their church, how many people are going. There's always inflation. May God protect us here from ever lying when we speak to other 
um, elders and pastors about how many people are in the body that God has called us to. How pathetic is that? As if God judges faithfulness only by the numbers that come through a door. May God protect us from ever lying in an illustration. It may mean more if the story I'm telling happened to, to me rather than a story that I heard someone else tell, but I am lying if I put myself in that position and said, when I played in the NFL, this happened to me. That might have more impact, but that would be bald-faced lying. May God guard our words from being dishonest in our speaking, in our teaching, if our end is to manipulate or to possibly motivate people to action, to do so by in a sinful, man-centered, manipulative way is sinful and lying. But why do we lie so readily? It just gets easier and easier. This is why I mean, you hear about lies built upon lies. We lie when we don't need to lie. I mean, there's never a need to lie, but you know, like when it really doesn't matter, like that, that illustration of texting and saying, I'm on my way when I'm actually three minutes from my car. You know, why did I lie? Why didn't I just say, why didn't I wait three minutes and text before I start driving? But why didn't I just say, I'm on my way then? Why, why lie about it when we, when we don't need to? The Bible speaks in a very warning sort of way. The Bible speaks in First Timothy of lies searing the conscience. That's burning. A burn, when it's burned enough, becomes dead to pain. And searing our conscience that God has put in each of us is what lying does. In my mind, I, I kind of see out at like Cannon Beach when, when you have a, a broad expanse of sand, and then as the water comes in, you, if you make a little, um, dig little trenches, the water fills them and, and, and digs more. The water digs more. As we lie, we're digging more rivulets for our lies to spread farther, and they may cross over and become more complicated. And it just, we're digging deeper and deeper channels of dishonesty when we lie. Let me submit two possible reasons why we may lie. First of all, we lie because our speech is careless. Our speech is careless. Our culture takes words very lightly. Don't we, as a matter of fact, demand to see things in writing before we will believe it? You know, someone's selling us something, we're entering into a contract for some work. We, we want things in writing because we don't believe it when someone says, oh yeah, that's included with the car. Because they, they're counting on the fact that after you sign the paperwork, you're not going to kill the whole deal because they lied to you verbally. So we demand to see things in writing. Um, if you take a man at his word on his handshake in business today, you're a fool. We demand for contracts to be written. We sometimes talk so much and we talk so quickly that we do so without considering the weight of our words. James says, be quick to hear, be slow to speak. But we do. Most of us don't, t- don't tell a direct, outright lie. We don't plan to. But we do, each day, exaggerate. We do spin the truth. We economize the truth to our advantage. We rationalize. We rename things so that they meet our agendas. So first of all, we lie because we are careless. Second of all, we lie because of fear. We fear the consequences of the truth. 
It takes courage to tell the truth to people. That's why we're much more eager to take good news to a person in person, but we'd rather write a note or email or just not tell them about bad news. Now, of course, I'm, I am saying we need to speak the truth in love. You don't want to be a person that just like bulldozes people with like, yeah, I don't want to hide this from you, but you're a complete jerk, and I'm just going to tell you that each time I see you. That's not speaking the truth in love, which is what Christians are called to. But if you have a problem with a person, if there is truth that needs to be told to a person, love them enough to tell them. We want people to like us, and we think that it would be nice if we avoid the truth. Someone else will tell them, and that's just cruelty. That's cowardice. Consider the consequences if we are to share the gospel in that way. The gospel has some really, really bad news and some good news. Really, really good news. If we are only to share, like, God loves you, God wants the, uh, your best day now, uh, God wants to bless you with, with finances, um, financial gain, and we, we just, say, just keep saying God loves you, we don't ever talk about the desperate problem of our sin and our need for a Savior. To withhold that truth is damning cruelty. So lying because of fear is another reason that we choose not to tell the truth. We lie because we're interested in self-preservation. We may be lying because we're avoiding just punishment that we, we deserve for something we did. Maybe we have a facade in our lives, a reputation, an image that we're trying to uphold. But hear this. We have to recognize, we must recognize that in our lives, when we lie, we are betraying our lack of faith in the sovereignty of God. We must recognize that in our lives, we are betraying our lack of faith in the sovereignty of God. We have to realize that our reputation, our lives are not ours, but in His hands. Perhaps this message today has convicted you deeply. And that has been my prayer this week because it's been an unpleasant time of study for me. I recognize this as a problem in my life, and I'm just like all of you. How can we all get back on the disciples' path of recovering truth in our lives? Some quick thoughts. It's not really a four-step plan, but just some quick thoughts. Number one, I would encourage all of us to have a spirit-led inventory of ourselves. Get alone, pray, ask yourself, am I trustworthy? Am I lying? Maybe I've redefined lying for some of us that shading the truth is lying. Am I trustworthy? Am I a liar? I would secondly encourage us to meet with a, a friend. And, and this is tough because some friends or a spouse might be so close to you that if you ask them, am I a truthful person, they're going to Maybe they're not quite ready to tell the truth. Maybe they're going to withhold the truth from you out of fear. So find someone who loves you enough to tell you the truth, but maybe distant enough that your bad reaction to that might not affect your friendship. But do a truth audit with a friend. Say, am I dependable? When I say something, am I truthful? Or do you always say, I take what Tim says with a grain of salt? That's another euphemism. I don't understand that one, but... Do I stretch or hide or shade the truth in any way? 
asking a friend that may help bring things to light. Number three, pray for God to expose the paths, the trenches of dishonesty that you've laid down in your life. We start lying when we're kids, and it gets easier. The the lies just get bigger. As God exposes these paths of dishonesty, confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to God. If you have lied specifically to someone and God's, God puts it on your heart that you need to set it right with them, go to them and, and confess your sin to the one you have wronged. God will be faithful to forgive if we are repentant. And hopefully the person that you ask forgiveness from, that you have sinned against, will also forgive. But confess your sins, ask God for forgiveness. And then fourthly, pray for God to heal your seared conscience. Pray that God would make you more sensitive to what you are saying, that you're more aware of when you're speaking the truth and when you are hiding it. I really believe that we shade the truth so much and so often that we don't even realize we're doing it. So we want God's Spirit in us to say, that's wrong. Don't, don't say that. Don't do that. I must say this. Please hear me. Do not let this passage, do not let this message or any others from the Sermon on the Mount or any messages from this pulpit, for this matter, do not let this message become another oppressive law to you. It's very easy for these messages to become just um, another legalistic set of things to do. Oh man, never lie. Never lust. You know, never hate. Man-made laws, codes of acceptable conduct, without God's empowering spirit, they just become legalistic paths of self-condemnation again. I've spent a lot of time today enumerating the various ways that we lie because I believe it's a real and everyday problem. I believe that most of us needed to be brought to the point of understanding that we do have an honesty problem, even if we don't consider ourselves that way. So I've spent more time uh, identifying that but I do not wish to burden you, anyone here, with a new load of legalistic self-condemnation. There is great healing and hope in confessing sin and having God forgive, and none of us can hope to give up lying in our own strength. But recognizing that we have a sin problem enables us to bring that sin to God for confession and forgiveness. And there are those here who struggle with self-condemnation, and there are also those here who do not recognize the gravity of our sin and the dangerous path that sin takes us. So wherever God's Spirit speaks to you, uh, please be aware that our action is to have sin identified in our lives, for us to confess that, for God to forgive, and for us to grow in understanding His grace and love for us. In our preaching on these topics in the Sermon on the Mount, we keep on driving to the heart of the matter. Our dishonesty and our lying comes from our heart. And only from a transformed heart do we have hope of living before God in truth. We have hope because we are no longer of our father, the devil, the father of lies. We have hope because our faith is in Jesus Christ. I want to close with a a very cool passage from 2 Corinthians 1 that not only addresses saying yes and no. The Apostle Paul is being attacked because his... um, uh, he, he may not have gone on a trip when some people thought he was, and they're like, your yeses are not yeses. You're saying yes and no. 
at the same time. But it also brings together the promises that God has made to us. So 2 Corinthians 1.18, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Isn't that beautiful? Like We talked about the reason God promises stuff for us is to give us a guarantee. And it says, he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee of the promise. There's a song that we sing that talks about Jesus being our yes and amen, and this is where that comes from. And I, sad to say, I never realized it. But he is the yes to all our promises, and that is why we can say amen. God makes promises, oaths, and vows to us, and he is always faithful to his word. He's given us his guarantee in the form of his spirit. And with God's help, may we live lives of truth-telling and honesty so that we might reflect his character to the world around us. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that these words, the simple truth, which can be very complicated in our lives, as we may have built up a lifetime of analysis and of writing our own little Mishnah about what we believe the truth to be. I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that these, um, this wonderful breakdown of, of the Pharisees' false teaching and our own false teaching in our lives, that um, the simple words from, from your son saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no, would change how we live together. And even even bigger than that, that it would be a testimony to others that we are uh, reflecting your glory and your faithfulness to your promises in all things. I pray that um, you would be continually working in our individual lives and our life as a body to make us more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.